0: Welcome to another episode of A Load of BS, the Behavioral Science Podcast, with me, Daniel Ross. This week I welcome psychologist, technologist, and businessman, Nir Eyal. Nir is the habits and distractions man, having written two best-selling books on the subject. Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Nir co-founded and sold two tech companies since 2003 and was dubbed by the MIT Technology Review as the prophet of habit-forming technology. Bloomberg Businessweek wrote, Nir Eyal is the habits guy. Want to understand how to get app users to come back again and again? Then Eyal is your man. Indistractable received critical acclaim winning the Outstanding Works of Literature Award as well as being named one of the best business and leadership books of the year by Amazon and one of the best personal development books of the year by Audible. The Globe and Mail called Indistractable the best business book of 2019. In addition to blogging at nearandfar.com, Neer's writing has been featured in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, Time Magazine and Psychology Today. Nier previously taught as a lecturer in marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Hasselblattner Institute of Design at Stanford. Today, he writes, consults and teaches the methodologies that he espouses in his books. You might not be surprised to hear that Nier also invests in habit-forming products. His portfolio includes Eventbrite, Kahoot, Product Hunt and Canva. Not bad at all. Despite recording this in near's evening time in Singapore, what will stand out to you in this conversation is Nia's insatiable enthusiasm for and clarity on his subject. He is a superlative wordsmith whose messages are conveyed with punch, but are always backed by thought and research. He's not afraid to challenge much of today's conventional wisdom in how we consume technology. In this part one of our conversation, I talk to Nia about how to build healthy habits in people's lives. Habits versus addictions whether technology is hijacking our brains, Nia's unfair investing advantage, how products influence our decisions, the purpose of brand advertising, breaking customers' habits, negativity bias, why we remember the bad stuff first, and the wonder of TikTok, the lunacy of Clubhouse, and of course the magic of podcasts. These podcasts are my greatest project and they are only worthwhile with your support. You can find my podcasts on all the usual platforms, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Do give me a five-star review if you enjoy it. And let me know what you think of it all on Twitter at DanielSJRoss. Now prepare to be distracted. Mia, welcome to a load of BS. It's a treat to have you here with me today. Oh, thank you. The pleasure's mine. Great. Now... As this podcast uh, delves into the nooks and crannies of human behavior, near your research, your writing, uh, the domain for which you've made your name takes up a fascinating position at the crossroads of psychology, technology, and business. Or if I may phrase it in plainer English, you are the habits and distractions man, right? <laughs> um, and you've written critically acclaimed books on these subjects. So Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and then Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. You wrote Hooked, about the components of habit-forming products, what drives compulsion, even, dare I say, with a small a, addiction to products and services. And then you wrote Indistractable, I guess, as a productivity manual to help us extricate ourselves from these sorts of habits. So my first question is, was that a natural sequence of writing or am I being oversimplistic?
1: No, I think there's definitely a connection there. It just so happened that my background and insight into how to build habit forming products made me, I think, a credible authority in terms of how effective or perhaps how overblown some of the reaction has been in terms of how so called addictive these products are. I mean, I understand how these products get you hooked better than anyone. I literally wrote the book on how they get you hooked. And I think what I wanted to understand was really what role do they play, not only in the good habits, that's what hooked was for, right? I wrote hooked not for the benefit of the companies I profile, right? I profiled Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack to make them case studies to democratize these techniques so that everyone in business can use these tactics for good, right? I didn't write the book for the people I profiled. I wrote the book for the rest of us so that we can all use these tactics to build good habits in people's lives. And that's exactly what's happened. Companies in every conceivable industry from health tech to FinTech to EdTech, all kinds of companies have used the techniques in the book to build healthy habits in users' lives. That was really the goal to help companies build good habits in users' lives. The other side is bad habits, right? So how do we break those bad habits? And so originally my publisher said, well, why don't you call it unhooked? And I said, no, 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 you're, you're completely missing the point here. The point is that we can have our cake and eat it too. That we can get the best of technology without letting it get the best of us because I am not one of these silly tech critics that's making their living off of this moral panic that technology is addicting everyone and hijacking our brains. I'm telling you that is ridiculous. It is just not supported by the science and it's doing nothing but making things worse to believe it's the case because it's a much deeper issue. What we tend to blame, by the way, Every generation does this. We did this with the radio, with the telephone, with the newspaper, with literally every medium that is developed, we think is melting people's brains. So it's no surprise that we're doing it right now with our latest technology. And what we avoid consistently every single time is the deeper psychology around why we get distracted in the first place. We blame the proximal cause, not the root cause of the problem. And so that's really what I wanted to explore in Indistractable. What's the root cause of distraction?
0: And that makes a lot of sense. And building on that, actually, one thing that really interests me about you Nir is that you're not only by any means an academic a teacher a writer but you're a very experienced practitioner of course you founded and sold tech companies you invest in them now I mean you know that says to me that you know you really show the courage in your convictions you're not a man of platitudes and predictions there's some poetry for you but you actually got sort of skin in the games you play and I do really respect that and I think it gives you important perspective on what you're talking about now that you of course have invested I think amongst other things habit forming products do you believe you've got an understanding unfair advantage in identifying winners. Are you are you identifying patterns that mere VC mortals are missing? And of course, <laughs> if so, what is your process, please? I do actually think I have an unfair
1: advantage. I've invested in 30 startups to date and five of them have become billion dollar companies. So it's pretty good odds so far. (laughs) And and to be honest, you know, between us and your thousands and thousands of listeners, I've made way more money (laughs) investing and putting my money where my mouth is than I have writing books. I didn't intend it to be this way, but it just so happens that people who were building habit forming products called me up and said, hey, you know, I've got this product. What do you think about it? I'm using your hook model and thinking about starting a company to bring this to fruition. What do you think? Can you help me? Every once in a while, I say yes. <laughs> and so, you know, some examples include Kahoot. About five years ago, this nice young guy named Johan calls me up and he says, hey, I, I read your book, Hooked, and I want to build this company. Here's my hook model. What do you think? And I said, wow, this is brilliant. Please take my money. How can I invest? A couple of years ago, the company's valued at over $4 billion and it's publicly traded. It's one of the world's largest educational companies. And it does this by getting kids hooked to online learning, right? It's it's a wonderful application of the hook model. Fitbod is another company that uses the hook model to to get people hooked to exercise, all kinds of examples of companies that can use the same methodology, not just for frivolity, right? I don't invest in social media companies and video game companies or companies that harm people in any way, shape or form. I want to invest in companies that build good habits that improve people's lives by applying this hook model. So my methodology to give you the long and the short of it is I use my book, (laughs) right? I invest in companies that use the hook model and where I think I can add value by working with companies that depend upon bringing customers back through some kind of habitual engagement that's the kind of company i want to invest in
0: well hooked clearly is a good hook and if you haven't bought it already well clearly here is an if not explicit then very implicit recommendation to get out there and read it i was to taking a step back what were your personal motivations to start sort of study originally habits and then distractions in such depth did it come from very personal experience well, it depends on how far back you want to go. <laughs> you know, I, right. I think I've I've always been fascinated by
1: human behavior, specifically how products change our decisions or influence our decisions, and the psychology behind products. You know, I think probably that fascination for me started when I was a kid. I was clinically obese. I went to fat wow. camp. I remember my mom took me to the doctor, and the doctor had this chart, and he showed me, okay, here's the green zone, here's the yellow zone, here's the red zone, and here's you. You're way over here in the obese <laughs> zone. And And so, you know, I felt at one point in my life that food controlled me. And my first instinct, and as I think it is for most of us, is to blame the stuff around us, right? It's McDonald's fault. It's the sugar company's fault. It's everybody else's fault, but my own. But it wasn't until I had the epiphany through a lot of counseling (laughs) that the reason I was overeating, it wasn't McDonald's fault. I wanted to blame them, but it wasn't the sugar company's fault. What was going on, it wasn't that I was eating just because this stuff was delicious. It was because I was eating my feelings. And look, everyone who who struggles with their weight. I mean, this is the problem, right? We eat when we feel lonely. We eat when we're bored. We eat when we feel ashamed about how much we've just eaten. <laughs> that's the behavioral pattern. And it wasn't until I broke that cycle and I learned that, wait a minute, this is actually something that's going on inside my own head that I have to figure out. Look, I still struggle with this. Today, I'm 43 years old. I'm actually in the best shape of my life, but that's a conscious effort. I have to be mindful about what I eat and what I do every day. But I think that's kind of where that fascination came from. And I think we hear you know, very similar sentiments today around technology as the source of distraction. So that's probably where it started for me. Fast forward many years later, the direct impetus to writing Hooked was that I had just sold my second tech startup and I wanted to start another one. And I knew that habits were going to become increasingly important. So this was around uh, 2012. The iPhone was just four years old at that point. And I could see that the interfaces that we interact with technology as those shrunk, right? As we went from big desktop screens to smaller laptop screens, to mobile phone screens, to wearable devices. And today with, you know, Amazon Alexa auditory devices, the screen has completely disappeared. What that therefore meant is that there's less room for what we call external triggers. These things in our environment that tell us what to do next because there's just less visual real estate. So what that means therefore is that if you are not in someone's line of vision, if they don't see you, the only other option is to cue that behavior through a habit. So if you're not on someone's home screen and you don't have a habit, your app doesn't exist. <laughs> you might as well close up shop. And so I knew that habits were going to be increasingly important as the visual interface shrunk. And so I really wanted to know how do I build a habit forming product? And so I looked around, I said, well, how did all these tech companies do it? How does Facebook do it? How does Twitter do it? How, how do these companies keep people coming back? And I didn't see a guidebook on how to do it. <laughs> so I started, you know, spending a lot of time in the Stanford library. I went there for business school and started interviewing a lot of these people at these companies to kind of learn their secrets for myself because I wanted to use these techniques. And I started blogging about it. And then one of my former professors, Dr. Baba Shiv, reached out to me and said, hey, I really like your model. I like your, how you're thinking here. Let's do a class together. And he kind of gave me carte blanche to create a curriculum at Stanford at the Graduate School of Business, taught that class from many years, then moved over to the Hasselblad Institute of Design, where I
0: taught a similar curriculum. And that became my first book, Hooked. Wow, that's great. And I want to come back to the hook model later, but as someone who's worked in advertising myself earlier in my career, there's an intriguing question, for me at least, about product design and advertising. Because if one can design perfect products, in theory, what then becomes the role of advertising to change consumer behavior versus product design itself? I wonder whether, should the very best products actually not need to advertise? Or is ad- does advertising in some way reflect poor product design? Or maybe I'm being a bit facetious.
1: I think that the role of advertising is pro- probably widely misunderstood. Now, first of all, there's two kinds of advertising. There's direct response advertising, which is the kind of advertising that is measured based on click-through rates and final purchases, right? So when you see an ad that gets you to make a purchase right here and now, that's the kind of advertising that is not about brand advertising. Brand advertising is a whole nother beast. It's not direct response, it's brand advertising. It's about building customer affinity. So when people think about television commercials, billboards, they typically think about brand advertising, not direct response, right? When you see a television commercial on TV, You can't transact right now and buy that Coca-Cola from your screen. That's not direct response. That's brand advertising. I think that's what you're referring to. So what's the purpose of brand advertising? It's not what people think. People think that brand advertising is meant to convert people who are not buying the product to buy the product, right? That somehow if you watch the millionth Coca-Cola commercial, you're going to say to yourself, aha, you know what? I'm going to start drinking Coca-Cola. No, you're probably not. The purpose of brand advertising is not to get people who are currently consuming the product to start consuming it. The purpose of brand advertising is to get people who are currently consuming the product to continue to consume the product. Because when you look at the kind of products and services that spend billions of dollars in advertising, and when you think about, you know, BP or Coca-Cola or these companies that really depend on brand advertising, they tend to be fat head businesses, right? They tend to be the kind of businesses where people have a very high affinity and a small proportion of those users are what we call heavy users. Right, It's ironic that the fast food industry calls those people heavy users for more reasons than one. But what they're doing is essentially they want to cater to the McDonald's devotee, the Coca-Cola devotee, so they don't switch to Burger King or Pepsi. That's the purpose of brand advertising, to reinforce this is your brand identity. This is your soda. This is your fast food restaurant. It is who you are. It's not meant to convert people who aren't currently consuming. It's meant to the people who are currently consuming
0: to continue and hopefully consume even more so i want to talk about habit forming addictive behaviors and the muddy waters that social media continues to find itself in on this subject and i know this is something that you've spoken about widely so firstly i want to be clear on what i think are some important definitions and misconceptions what's the difference between being addicted and being hooked if any
1: So let's start with an addiction. The definition of an addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So my book is not called How to Build Addictive Products. That would be sadistic. We would never want to harm our users. That's never, I mean, it's in the book. I talk about the difference between addiction and habituation. So we would never want to addict someone intentionally. Now, it is an unfortunate byproduct that any product that is good and is used by a sufficient number of people will addict someone. Why? Because every analgesic, any Analgesic is potentially addictive. Did you know that some people get addicted to drinking water? There is literally such a thing, that thing. That is a thing. There, are people get addicted to all kinds of things. Anything that solves pain, analgesic, someone will get addicted to. Not because they addict everyone. All kinds of things, someone gets addicted to, but not everyone. Think about alcohol, right? Alcohol is way more addictive. Nobody would tell you that alcohol is not more addictive than I don't know social media, <laughs> right? And yet, does everyone who drinks alcohol become addicted? Of course not. A very small percentage, three to five percent of the population gets addicted to alcohol. We call those people alcoholics. But not everyone who has a glass of wine with dinner becomes addicted to alcohol. Far from it. So why do we somehow think that you know everyone who touches Facebook is somehow going to become addicted? It's absolutely ridiculous. What we do become is perhaps habituated, right? What is a habit? A habit is nothing more than an impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. It's not mind control, certainly not an addiction. It's a habit. And if anything, these behaviors, they're not addictions for the vast majority of people. If anything, they're bad habits or perhaps a distraction. But we don't like using that vocabulary. We don't like calling it a distraction because when I call it an addiction, I can blame somebody. Mark Zuckerberg, you're addicting me. You're a dealer. You're a pusher. It's not my fault, right? If I call it a distraction, oh crap, now I got to do something about it. Well, that's no fun. (laughs) So people love (laughs) calling it addictions. And it's a brutal term because not only does it disrespect people who really do suffer from the pathology of addiction, it's a terrible disease addiction. So by saying, oh, everybody's getting addicted, it's very disrespectful. We don't say this about Tourette's. We don't say this about epilepsy. Why do we say everybody has this disease of addiction? It's very disrespectful. Two, it's incredibly disempowering because when you say, oh, there's nothing I can do. I'm addicted. My kids, they're addicted. Well, what do you do about it? Nothing. You're powerless. (laughs) And I think that's why it's actively harmful to call these things addictive when for the vast majority of people, they absolutely are not.
0: Yeah, and if I, if I can try and summarize what I think is your position, I mean, you don't believe tech platforms that are particularly skilled that call it hooking. Consumers are responsible for what many, by the way, regard as these sort of addictive behaviors and the associated negative effects, whether that's mental health issues, trolling, the sort of terrible screen distraction that comes from it. But of course, Facebook, as the obvious example, doesn't oblige our attention. I think what you're nudging at is that it's rather up to us to be more disciplined in how and when we use it. I mean, maybe you can flesh that that out a little. So there's a lot to unpack there. The main point here is nuance.
1: When anyone wants to sell you a simple story, and by the way, this tech critic narrative is incredibly simplistic. It's built on this house of cards that the foundation is you're addicted, right? Let's start with the fact that you're addicted, because if that's not the foundation of their argument, none of the other crap holds any water. Why are people spreading misinformation? Well, they're addicted. Why do they share stuff that I don't like them to share? Well, they're addicted. Why do they believe these stupid things. They're addicted. So their entire argument rests on the fact that people can't make good choices because I disagree with them. They must be addicted. You know, this goes back to this whole mythology of mind control. We love this zombie narrative that if someone makes a decision we don't like, their minds must be controlled, especially if they're our political opposition, (laughs) right? Of course, if it's our side of the story, our political side, then that's fine. They're leveraging a new medium in creative ways. But if the opposition does it, well, they they must be crazy. They must be being exploited. So that's where we start this whole, you know, ridiculous argument and why the House of Cards doesn't stand for this tech critic argument. But I do think that there is nuance here, particularly with the fact that some people, undeniably, Do become addicted to these services because people, as I mentioned earlier, analgesic is potentially addictive to someone. I mean, like we said, water. People get addicted to drinking too much water. There there is such a thing. It's in the the clinical annals. People get addicted to Q tips, right? There's all kinds of crazy things that people become addicted to. So, what we need to do, however, and this is something I've said for over six years now, is that companies who build products on a scale where some people do become addicted to their products and they know who is addicted, they have a moral imperative. So, we have certain classes of people in our society that are protected classes. The most obvious is children. I'm not going to let my 13-year-old daughter walk into a library and just read any book, right? Because there's a lot of books that a 13-year-old is just not ready for. Does that mean books are evil? Books are banned? Books should be banned? Absolutely not. (laughs) There should be parental guidance for protected classes of people. So, children are not allowed to walk into bars and order a gin and tonic. They're not allowed to go into a casino and start gambling on blackjack because they are a protected class. I think we should add a protected class to people who are pathologically addicted So the solution here is to let the rest of us use these tools. We're grownups. We know how to use these tools and most of us are not susceptible to addiction. So what we do need to do is to put guardrails in place for people who are pathologically addicted. Well, how could you do that? For the first time, we actually can do something about it. If you think about it, most things that are addictive, let's take alcohol manufacturers, right? A distiller has no idea who the alcoholics are. How could they possibly know how many drinks you bought from your local convenience store? They have no idea. So there's not much they can do about it. However, these tech products, they do know they have person identifiable information about how much time you spend on their platform. So what I've been advocating for is what we call a use and abuse policy. I want these companies to give me some kind of number. Okay. And I've met with all of, them, by the way, I met with Reddit. I met with Snapchat. I met with Facebook. I met with many of these companies and I implore them to give me some kind of number, 30 hours a week, 40 hours a week. Give me a number, a number of hours per week that would indicate, Hey, you know what? You might be struggling with an addiction. We're going to reach out to you and say, can we help? Very respectfully. We're going to ask you, can we help can we help moderate your behavior can we lead you to resources that may help you recover from your addiction because we know who is potentially struggling from an addiction we have the moral obligation to do something but for the rest of us if we're not a protected class so if you're not a child and you're not pathologically addicted leave me the hell alone i don't need regulation to tell me how much time i can spend on facebook
0: do you remember i think maybe a month or so ago when facebook whatsapp and instagram went down globally we were forced into this sort of temporary digital detox maybe even just for a few hours but how concerning was it to you have genuinely difficult, people seem to find those few hours. There was this outpouring of Twitter emotion and comment, perhaps somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it felt to me there was a reasonable amount of truth in it.
1: I mean, I I think it shows you how good it is. What would happen if for a few hours nobody could drive a car? Right? There'd be a lot of outrage. You know why? Because cars are great. (laughs) (laughs) right? Cars are really, really useful. So I think when it comes to a technology that connects people together, that allows people to connect with disparate groups that they wouldn't otherwise be able to associate with, that allow... I mean, look at us right now, right? I'm in Singapore, you're in the UK. We're talking over thousands of miles with video phones. I mean, if you had told me this when I was a kid, I would say, you're crazy. This is science fiction. So we take for granted how amazing this technology is and how great it is and how much it improves our lives. We have, I'm sure you know, what's called the negativity bias, that we remember the bad stuff much more than the good stuff. And so I think it behooves us every once in a while to say, wait, wait wait a minute, this stuff is great. <laughs> right? But of course, you know, the profiteers, the people who want your money, who want your votes, they rabble rouse based on moral panics. That's always been a tried and true playbook. When there's a new scary technology that the youngins are using that's a wonderful place to beat up especially when it's a form for your ideological opposition to voice their concerns and go against traditional media right every generation does this by the way the newspapers were up in arms when automobiles started putting radios in cars the newspapers had a fit it's going to melt everybody's brain that they can get information without reading in the newspaper so of course what we see in the traditional media today is that they're having a fit because guess what facebook is competition <laughs> so is just par for the course.
0: I accept a lot of that. And I think, look, by the way, it is far easier in life to be a skeptic, to kick and criticize and than to praise because people tend to feel a little clever about picking holes rather than finding the positive things. But just to sort of try and identify the other side of this coin, Facebook published an article in September about Instagram and teen well-being saying in sort of headline terms that Instagram made teenage girls feel better. And that was a rebuttal to a contrary Wall Street Journal interpretation of some Facebook research which actually dated back to 2019. Now, in this case, I was actually inclined to support the journal because the piece that Facebook and Instagram seem to skip over is that you know messaging with friends certainly makes teens feel better. You make the point just now about being able to communicate remotely. But of course, teens and indeed we can do that on many apps, not just Facebook. But of course, the other side is that social comparison, however, doesn't tend to make teens, young people, feel better. So I think maybe does there need to be a differentiation between sort of texting? That's not the same as social media and the latter of which is typically dominated by news feed that leans on sort of self-comparison, outrage, polarizing debate and so forth. And by all means, tell me I'm talking a load of BS, but <laughs> just a position I fancy taking.
1: I appreciate that we need to figure out where products harm users. I think that's a very important question. The tragedy is that that's exactly what Facebook tried to do. Nobody made them take that survey. They intentionally went out, and by the way, it was a very small survey of 30 teenagers, and they wanted to see how the product made them feel. Now, the real travesty is that they're never going to do that again. That's the real tragedy of this. This company, if you look at the report, they were trying to figure out how people felt about after using their product so that they could make the product better. (laughs) They didn't want to make them feel bad. But if you actually look at the research, it was 30 girls that they they interviewed. And by the way, no effect on boys. But for girls, I think it was something like 17% felt worse. The rest felt better or neutral, right? So, okay so this is the headline you always heard in the headline oh you know instagram makes girls feel bad but technology doesn't live in a vacuum if you had a self-reported survey by the way this didn't indicate depression it wasn't any kind of medical diagnosis it was self-reported the question was how do you feel after using facebook and it was a five point scale one being great five being bad and you know most people fell somewhere in the middle if you would have asked the same exact question about how do you feel after watching cable news how do you feel after going to school tell me what the response would have been it probably also would have Been that a proportion of the population would say it makes me feel like crap. So, this is not surprising. So, what has happened, I think it's a wonderful example. Cambridge Analytica scandal did the same exact thing. It was a non event that was turned into and manipulated into something to do the exact same thing that these media outlets were deriding. They are deriding social media from manipulating your attention. And that's exactly what the media did with this story. It's exactly what the movie The Social Dilemma did. They used all the psychological tricks and hacks. Again, I know because I wrote the book on how they do it to get you to watch this movie on Netflix. (laughs) The irony is killing me. Okay, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, said their biggest competition was sleep. And here's the Social Dilemma movie that uses these crazy avatars that are manipulating you and creating voodoo dolls. And by the way, deriding echo chambers when they didn't even let one other person with a contradictory opinion, a la me, they interviewed me for three hours and didn't put even one minute of what I or any other person who disagreed with them have to say. Talk about an echo chamber. The hypocrisy is bleeding everywhere, and we don't talk about it. And that's unfortunately what's what's happening. However, the good news is my side's going to win. Here's what's going to happen. I know that I sound like I'm a shill for the tech industry, okay? I get that idea. If you heard me so far, it looks like this guy's saying, use more of these techniques. Let me be as clear as possible. I'm not sure if this is a family safe show, but let me be very clear these guys, okay? I would say something even more forceful, but I don't don't want to get censored here. If you don't want to use social media, stop, okay? I'm not saying that you should use more of them. In fact, Indistractable shows you exactly how to F these guys and stop using these tools. But the way we will stop using these tools or use them more appropriately is not by waiting for the geniuses in government to do something about it. That's never going to happen. It's not by hoping, by holding our breath, that the companies are going to do something about it. If you hold your breath, you're to suffocate. We have to do something about it. I could care less if you never use these tech platforms again. There are some tech products I never use because I don't think they add to my life. What I'm trying to do is to steer the conversation to say, stop waiting for the government to fix this problem. They're not going to fix the problem. Getting products to become less good is a stupid proposition. We want products to be engaging. Why do we think we use them in the first place? So Should we say, hey, Netflix, stop making your show so interesting. I want to watch them a lot. Apple, please make your devices less user friendly because I find myself enjoying using them all the time. That's stupid. We want these products to be good. We have to take responsibility for this behavior. We can do something about it. And the way we do something about it is by becoming indistractable.
0: So I'm going to come back to the subject of distraction, but just to be a little chronological, I want to just, before we talk about tactics of traction or versus distraction, I just want to just turn back to Hooked briefly. I just wanted to get into the tactics of that because in Hooked, in terms of habit forming products, you present this four stage hook model and it would be remiss not to just touch on that. Can you just paint that picture for us in very broad brushstrokes?
1: So uh, what is a hook? A hook is a design experience to connect the user's problem to your product with enough frequency to form a habit. So a hook, has four steps. It starts with a trigger. We have an external trigger, which are the things in our outside environment, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything that tells you what to do next. And then we have what's called an internal trigger. An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape. So boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, anxiety, any of these uncomfortable emotions that we turn to a product habitually to relieve that sensation, which by the way, is the reason we do everything. Every product we use, we use to modulate our mood. The next step of the hook is the action phase. This is the simplest behavior done in anticipation of reward. It's opening an app, scrolling a feed, checking a dashboard, any kind of simple behavior that scratches that user itch. Then comes the variable reward phase, which is where the user's itch is scratched. And there's always some kind of variability, right? There's some kind of uncertainty. That's why it's a variable reward or as Skinner said, an intermittent reinforcement. Then the fourth and final step is called the investment phase, which is where the user puts something into the product to make it better with use. So it's through successive cycles through these hooks, trigger, action, reward, investment. This is how habits are formed when it specifically comes to the process products that we use.
0: Now, Rich Shotton, who I don't know whether you're familiar with, he's a writer, he writes, he's written a book called The Choice Factory. And it's about, amongst other things, the difficulty for brands to change our preferences once we're anchored. So I'm interested in the tactics that competitor products can use to break mm. our habits and then mm. take us into something new. Yeah, so this is not easy.
1: <laughs> so part of right. the, the beauty of building a habit is that it's a huge competitive moat. If you think about Google, for example, when I do presentations in front of live audiences, I'll often ask, you know, how many of you have used Google in the past 24 hours? Almost every hand will shoot up. And I say, well, how many of you have used Bing, the world's second largest search engine in the past 24 hours? Maybe in a room of 100 people, one person will raise their hand. It's typically a former Microsoft employee (laughs) who's still using Bing. Why is that? Is it because Google is so much better? No. It turns out in head-to-head comparisons when people are given the search results from Google versus Bing, but they don't know which is which. They strip out the branding. It's a 50-50 preference split. People don't have a preference for one or the other. And yet Google owns, what, 90-something percent of the search engine market? Why is that? Because when we form a habit with a product, we don't even give the competition a chance. When was the last time before you Googled something, you said, hmm, I wonder who makes the best search engine? We don't do that. We just Google it with little or no conscious thought, purely out of habit. It's not technically a monopoly. It's a monopoly of the mind because we don't even consider the competition. And so to your question, it's very, very difficult to break that customer habit. There are, however, four ways to do this. The first way to break the competition's customer habit is greater velocity velocity through the hook so if you can send people through the four steps faster than the competition trigger action reward investment faster with greater velocity that's the first way the second way is greater frequency so this occurs generally when there's an interface change that allows us to interact with the technology more often throughout the day so when you think about how you know we went from laptops to mobile devices well that means we can interact with these products more frequently throughout our day that's the second way so every time that happens when there's a big interface change the habit deck gets reshuffled and that's where in market entrants have an opportunity Opportunity to take on an incumbent. The third way is to make the reward more rewarding. And this is the most difficult of the four. Studies find there's a, a study published in the Harvard Business Review that found that to escape the inertia of a habit, a product can't just be better. It has to be nine times better. But sometimes that happens. Sometimes the reward is just so much more rewarding that people will switch. The fourth way is to make it easier to get into the hook in the first place. So this happened in the case of Microsoft Office versus Google Docs. That Google Docs still can't do as much as Microsoft Office. It certainly couldn't do as much. Much when it first came out. But when Google Docs first came out, it had a huge advantage in that it was free and there was no physical software. Like Microsoft Office back in the day, you had to go buy a disk and put it into your machine. Well, Google Docs, you could just use in the cloud. And so it was so much easier if you were a student and you just wanted to use a word processor to write up a term paper or an entrepreneur who wanted to use a spreadsheet, you could start using that right now as opposed to going to have to buy some software from Microsoft. So easier entry into the hook is that fourth and final way. So velocity, frequency, make the reward more reward and easier entry into the hook.
0: In the Choice Factory, Shotton talks about identifying life-changing events. And of course, that feels quite topical now because he sort of, one could cite COVID as an example, as a time when people are reflecting on or thinking about changing their product choices. I think that that idea probably works in some things and not for others. I think if you're talking about Google, which actually has its own verb, then you've probably got to work a lot harder than just identifying COVID, marriage or career switches to move (laughs) move people over to Bing or other things. So where that is relevant
1: for sure is when... there are new products to be bought right so when you are expecting a baby you go from never buying diapers to all of a sudden buying diapers (laughs) right so that is a place where new habits are formed but still you won't start using bing over google just because you had a baby
0: right exactly and since writing the book you mentioned i think kahoot at the beginning that's what the company invested in so i imagine that falls in this category but can you give a few examples of companies that you've seen create you know mind-blowing hooks in their products
1: Well, I'll tell you a product that I don't use because it's too good. (laughs) And that's TikTok. I think TikTok makes Facebook as much as people, you know, rag on Facebook for being too engaging. TikTok is a whole nother category. If you want to understand why TikTok is so engaging, it uses the same exact form factor. Do you remember, I don't know if you, I know that you're in the UK, but when I grew up, we had this television show called America's Funniest Home Videos. Did you have that? Equivalent of, yeah. Okay. Same idea. I mean, we would stop everything. This was back in the day, way before streaming, way before the internet. But I remember, as a kid, life stopped at 7pm because America's Funniest Home Videos was coming on. And what was it? It was just a bunch of pratfalls, right? It was the person stepping in a can of paint and the guy falling off the roof and, you know, clip after clip after clip of funny little videos. Well, that's what TikTok is, but it's always with you. You can use it anytime you want. And it uses the hook model in such a effective way. I mean, you've got the same internal trigger, right? The same reason we used to watch America's Funniest Home Videos. It's boredom. That's the internal trigger. The action is to open this app. But instead of waiting for 7 p.m. on Thursday nights to watch the show, it's in your pocket at all times. You just open the app. The variable reward, of course, it's just like a slot machine. It's new content all the time. You get the next video, the next video, the next video. There's always something interesting. and You never know what the next video might be about. And then, of course, the investment is, and this is where they really excel, is that based on your investment in the product, how long you watch the video, what you like, all these metrics that they're collecting about you, they are tailoring the product to meet your needs. So if they see that, hey, you really like videos with dancing in it, you're going to see more more videos of dancing. And it's just so well done that it's actually something that I had to uninstall for my phone because I found I was wasting too much time using it. But that's a product that I think is really, really amazingly designed to be incredibly habit forming.
0: Well, since you mentioned TikTok, then I can't help but ask, do you think that the investors and founders of Clubhouse need to read Hooked?
1: I think they should absolutely read Hooked, and they should review the article that I wrote probably a year and a half ago, right when TikTok was starting to get big. That said, why I don't think TikTok is going to last. <laughs> Clubhouse, you mean? I, sorry, Clubhouse. Why I th- why I had doubts about Clubhouse.
0: I'm in the same camp, but I'll be curious to find out. Not that I wish uh, failure on. No, it no, no. Of course, enough, not, but... of course not. Of course
1: not. I just think there's some real structural problems. I think asynchronous crowd communication is really tough because of this aspect of variable reward that people expect if the internal trigger is boredom if the reason you tune into clubhouse is to be entertained if that's the internal trigger i don't want to wait (laughs) i want to be entertained right now so if the choice is clubhouse where eh, nothing interesting is happening versus tiktok when there's always something interesting happening well where do you think people are going to go
0: Exactly. And let's stick to podcasts therefore.
1: Exactly. Actually, this is a great point. So the fact that, you know, podcasts are not synchronous, they're not live, right? So the fact that I can tune into your podcast whenever I'm ready for it and it's going to be entertaining, that's absolutely right. I mean, this is really why podcasts have, have taken off over the past decade or so is exactly this reason.
0: There ends part one of my interview with Nir. I think a breathe is needed to process the richness of the story and so, next time we'll complete it with a focus on distraction, its causes and the four step methodology we can all use to help us focus on the things that we value most. If you want the secrets to bypassing pointless meetings and escaping the terror of to do lists then block half an hour in your diary now, subscribe to a load of BS if you haven't already and I'll be with you again soon.